There is a question people ask after any disaster, whether it's a, a global pandemic or a mass shooting or a broken vase in the living room. Uh, people want to know what? What is it? Who did it, right? Who's responsible for this? Who's to blame for this? The passage we're going to look at today from John's Gospel deals with that question. It, it deals with the question of who's responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Who sent Jesus to the cross? We're going to be looking at John chapter 18, verse 28. We're going to go into chapter 19 up to verse 16. And uh, if you need a Bible, just catch the eye of one of these men coming down the uh, aisle, and uh, they'd be glad to hand one to you. It's always good to have it open to the passage we're looking at. We'll put some other passages up on the screen, but good to have the main one open so that we can find it again and dig back into it. And you'll find questions in your program as well for further thought, and I hope you can make use of those as well. In these Bibles, the Bibles they were just passing out, it's on page 755, John chapter 18, starting at verse 28. We're not going to um, read the whole passage, it's a lengthy one, but we will walk through it as we examine this question, who sent Jesus to the cross? One answer, maybe the obvious one, is Pilate did it. Pilate sent Jesus to the cross. After all, he's the Roman governor. He has the power of capital punishment. The Jewish leaders came to him because he could order a crucifixion and they couldn't. Rome had taken that power away from them. Only the Roman government could do that. But Pilate was the embodiment of the Roman government with all of its authority and he could do it. He gave the order and it was done. So he's responsible. Pilate sent Jesus to the cross. Case closed, right? Well, let's walk through the passage with that assumption in mind. Pilate did it, and see how well that assumption holds up. Take a look at uh, verse 29 for beginners here. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? Uh, we see that when the Jewish leaders bring Jesus to Pilate, he approaches his role like a judge, and he asks the accusers for the charges they're bringing against the accused. He gets no charges. Verse 30, all he gets is, is a snarky answer. If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. So he tells them in verse 31, okay, well then deal with it yourselves. They tell him they can't because they want him executed. Verse 31. That kicks it up a level. Pilate goes back inside and talks to Jesus, this man that they want dead. He asks Jesus an interesting question in verse 33. Are you the king of the Jews? Evidently, the Jewish leaders said something about that to Pilate. Why would they? Why would they say something about Jesus being a king or especially king of the Jews. They know Pilate doesn't really care about internal Jewish affairs. He's a political man. He has worked hard and he has married up 
to get to this position of governor that he's in, and he wants to hold on to it. They also know, though, that if they can show Jesus to be a political threat to him, Pilate will want him eliminated. And that fits their plan very well. And so they bring up this, this idea of Jesus claiming to be king, evidently behind closed doors with Pilate. John doesn't record it, but it comes out in the discussion. And so this king theme will run throughout the whole passage. The word king or kingdom is going to show up 11 times in this passage. And then you've got a crown, which is suitable for a king, although it is a crown of thorns. You've got a royal robe, although it is probably a faded red robe from a Roman soldier. But you've got the crown and the robe and the king theme, and it's going all through this whole passage. So the idea comes across to us, Jesus is some sort of king. But what sort of king? Pilate and Jesus have a brief discussion over that question. Who uh, are, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus wants to understand where Pilate's coming from with that question about his kingship. Does Pilate want to know, for instance, if Jesus is a threat to him? Or is Pilate just repeating a charge that he has heard from the Jewish leaders? If Jesus is a threat to Pilate, Pilate's going to have him executed, no question. If this is just an internal Jewish debate, Pilate really doesn't care. So Pilate, uh, Jesus asks Pilate in verse 34, which it is. Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Where's this question coming from? And Pilate's answer in verse 35 shows he really doesn't care about Jewish matters. Am I a Jew? He asks. Obviously not. What he's saying is, I'm not a Jew, so I don't care about your religious stuff. He goes on to tell Jesus it's his own people and chief priests who've turned him in. So Pilate wants to know what has those people so worked up. Verse 35, what is it you have done that they would turn you in like this, want you dead? Jesus knows now that Pilate is only concerned about his own little kingdom. And so he can tell Pilate that the kingdom he represents is not of this world. Jesus is no threat to Pilate, no threat to Rome. And he's already proved that in the garden. Remember the garden scene where Peter pulls out the sword and takes off Malchus's ear and Jesus says, oh, put the sword away. Keeps Peter and the others from fighting for Jesus. Verse 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. They didn't do that. I wouldn't let them. But now my kingdom is from another place, he says. Literally, not from here. So Pilate's trying to figure out this whole kingdom thing that Jesus is talking about. And so he makes this statement in verse 37, you are a king then. He's essentially saying, so you're, you're telling me that you really are some kind 
of king. And Jesus' reply says, you say that I am a king. And that can be translated, king is your word, not mine. You said it. And then Jesus goes on to explain the real reason why he came into the world, and that is to testify to the truth. That is, to reveal the truth about who God is. Think back just a few chapters to chapter 14, one of the I am statements of Jesus when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He is here to reveal the Father, to reveal the truth about who God is. He's shifting the discussion from kingship to truth. And then Jesus says in verse 37, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. It's a gentle invitation to Pilate. You can come to the side of truth yourself. Pilate isn't interested. Makes this cynical reply, what is truth? And he turns and walks away. Jesus has nothing that Pilate is interested in. But he knows this much. This man, Jesus, isn't guilty. He tells the Jewish leaders that in verse 38. I find no basis for a charge against this man. No basis. But he decides he's going to throw them a bone. This, uh, there's a tradition, it seems, of, of releasing a prisoner at Passover time. Kind of a goodwill gesture from the Romans. So he says, how about I release to you uh, the king of the Jews? Offers to give Jesus a Passover pardon. In verse 40, it says, they shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Very interesting here where it says, they shouted back. Now this is Jewish leaders shouting at the Roman governor. Uh, it's an interesting word, this shout. It implies a very unpleasant sound like the cawing of crows. You ever seen crows going at it? You know, kind of hunch forward and, and, and caw. That's what's implied in this word. And it shows up all through the passage as the Jewish leaders are shouting at Pilate at every turn. They're just letting him have it. They tell him they want Barabbas instead. And Barabbas is described here as someone who'd taken part in an uprising. If you look at the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you find that he's a murderer and he's taken part in a bloody insurrection. In short, he is a terrorist. So we don't want Jesus released. We want you to release a terrorist. And Pilate decides to try another angle. Okay, so they're not going to take me up on this, this offer of releasing him. I'll just have him punished, and, and that should be enough. That'll show them that he's done something. Maybe that will satisfy them. So he has Jesus flogged, verse 1 of chapter 19. There were three levels of flogging in the Roman system. The mildest form, if, 
if that even is a word that fits, mildest form served as punishment itself uh, and a warning. And so you would flog somebody and turn them loose, which is what Pilate is proposing to do here. The most severe form of flogging was actually a step toward crucifixion. It was preparing the victim for the cross. Evidently, what Pilate is suggesting here is the first one. I'll punish him and let him go, he says in Luke chapter 23, verse 16. It's interesting that the other Gospels record the flogging taking place after Pilate pronounced the death sentence on him. And so what that would mean is that after this punishment flogging that we see here, where Pilate wanted to punish him with flogging and then let him go, comes the death sentence and the kind of flogging that prepares one for the cross. Pilate then brings Jesus out after the flogging, dressed ridiculously in a purple robe, probably again a faded red one from a Roman soldier, and wearing a crown of thorns. So he is this pitiful king of the Jews. He tells them again that he finds no basis for a charge against him. This alone ought to be enough to satisfy them. He points to this pitiful, bloodied man who is clearly no threat to them and says, verse 5, here's the man. Here's the man. Literally, behold the man. In other words, just look at him. Just look at this pitiful man. Are you satisfied now? And they're not. They start cawing again. Same word in verse 6. Same word as before. And for the first time, they use the word that shows what they really want, and that is crucified. They shout, crucified, crucified. And Pilate says, no, you, you deal with it. I find no basis for a charge against him, verse 6. At this point, the Jewish leaders finally give the charge that Pilate had been asking for all along. In verse 7, they say he claimed to be the Son of God. That's against our law. We want him dead. And somehow, this makes Pilate even more afraid than he already was. Look at verse 8. Then Pilate, When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Why would he be more afraid now? Could be that he's finally really recognizing the full weight of their resolve. These folks mean business. These folks aren't going to back down. Uh, they're religious fanatics, and they're not going to let this thing go. So I'm stuck. Or, remember, Pilate is a polytheist. He worships many gods, worships the whole Roman pantheon. And he wonders if Jesus might be something more than a man. And if he sentences Jesus to death, he might be bringing something really awful down on himself. So he goes back inside, back to Jesus, 
and asks him this question in verse 9. Where do you come from? He's not asking, where were you born? He's not asking, where were you raised? He's asking, are you from this planet? Where are you from? And Jesus doesn't answer. So Pilate reminds Jesus of the power that he has over Jesus, and they have a brief discussion about what power is and where power comes from. And Jesus points out that Pilate's power comes from above. And what he's saying here is not just his Roman bosses. What power he has has been given him from God. That's the real power. Verse 12 says, From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. The verb implies continual action. Pilate kept trying to set him free. The Jewish leaders kept cawing, same word. And then they play their trump card. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. They're threatening to go to Caesar, to tell Caesar that Pilate let a terrorist go, that Pilate let a man go who claims to be king. Say, Weren't you king last time we checked, Caesar? This man's claiming to be king, and Pilate's letting him go. Going to Caesar has been something other Jewish leaders had done already. So Pilate recognizes they are now hitting him where it hurts. They're threatening him politically. They're going to go to Caesar. And so Pilate finally caves. He takes his seat in judgment, verse 13. And he says, here's your pitiful king. No threat to you, no threat to me, no threat to Rome. But they start cawing again in verse 15. And he says, you really want me to crucify your king? And then they say something that makes them look more loyal to Rome than Pilate does. They say, we have no king but Caesar. Now, to a Jew, that's blasphemy. They have no king but God. They don't bow to any earthly king. And here are the, the very leaders of the Jewish nation saying, we have no king but Caesar. And Pilate hands Jesus over. Pilate's guilty. Pilate's guilty. He sent Jesus to the cross. But you and I can see he got played. And that leads us to a second consideration. Who sent Jesus to the cross? The Jewish leaders did. They played Pilate every step of the way. They want this whole matter, matter settled quickly and conveniently so they can get to their Passover dinner, verse 28 says. Look at that. Uh, then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them. They want to get to their Passover dinner, so they make the Roman governor come out to them so they don't defile themselves by going into the palace. They'd have to miss dinner. 
They make him come out. And we see them outmaneuvering Pilate every step of the way, all through the passage. He asks for the charges that they're bringing. They don't give him any. In verse 30, they just say, if he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him. And Pilate says, well, then judge him yourselves. And they reveal they want him executed. He can do that. They can't. They want then to use Pilate for what his office can do for their agenda. After interviewing Jesus, Pilate tells these Jewish leaders that he finds no basis for a charge against him, and he offers to release Jesus as their Passover gift, and they refuse, they shout back, they caw at him, and say, we want Barabbas, the terrorist. Fascinating to show, think they would show that kind of disrespect to the Roman governor. So Pilate has Jesus flogged to try to appease their bloodlust. And he brings out this bloodied man, Jesus, and shows him to them. And they say, uh-uh, that's not enough. And they shout again, crucify. Same word for shout, like the cawing of crows. And Pilate tells them again, I find no basis for a charge, verse 6, but they won't back down. And Pilate is afraid already, but in verse 8 it tells us now he's even more afraid. So he goes back to Jesus in verse 9. And then in verse 12, repeatedly tries to set him free. But the Jews keep cawing. And then they play their trump card. We're going to tell Caesar on you. And that seems to be checkmate. Pilate sits down at his judgment seat. He says, here's your king. Look at this pitiful man. He's half dead already. More cawing. You really want me to crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. A reminder that Pilate will be in trouble with Caesar if he doesn't do what they want him to do. And so verse 16 says, finally, finally, after trying everything he knew, finally he hands Jesus over to be crucified. Yeah, Pilate did it. But Pilate got played. It was the Jewish leaders who sent Jesus to the cross. Lots of people have landed on that conclusion over the years. The Jews have been persecuted as long as they have existed. Hitler called them Christ killers and eliminated six million of them. But is there a deeper answer? Is there a better answer to the question of who sent Jesus to the cross? There is. There is. God did. God did. Jesus, Revelation 13, 8 tells us, was the lamb slain from the creation of the world. What he would do for us on the cross was something that the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit decided before creating the world. They put the plan of salvation into effect before humankind was created. C.S. Lewis put it this way. God who needs nothing loves into existence holy superfluous creatures 
in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe, already foreseeing the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross. The flayed back, pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the messial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites, causes them to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. Jesus was in full control of his situation. When you look at verse 32 of chapter 18, it says this, This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. He knew it. All along, he planned it all along. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit planned it out from eternity past. It was what would be needed for our salvation. And he created us anyway. Who sent Jesus to the cross? Pilate did. He sent Jesus to the cross. Jewish leaders did. They played Pilate to get what they wanted. God did. He put in place the plan of salvation for fallen humankind before there was a fallen humankind. But that begs the question, if there were no fallen humankind, Jesus wouldn't have had to go to the cross. So there's another answer. We did it. We sent Jesus to the cross. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his own love. It's not a give and take. You give me something, I'll give you my love thing. It's his own brand of love. This grace-based love that moves first, that gives first, that gives to the undeserving. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He went to the cross for us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. An atoning sacrifice is, is one that substitutes itself for another and turns away wrath. This is what he did out of love for us. I've always appreciated the lyrics of Michael Card. He wrote a song called Why. And he said this, why did it have to be a heavy cross he was made to bear. And why did they nail his feet and hands? His love would have held him there. 
Jesus went to the cross to pay for our sin. He did it willingly. He did it for the joy that would be set before him in bringing us into a relationship with God. He endured that cross for us. That is what communion is all about. That's why we do this on a regular basis. It's a graphic reminder of the cost of our salvation. Two very common elements loaded with meaning. Bread that represents the body of the Lord Jesus. A cup full of red juice representing his blood. They remind us that somebody had to pay for our sin. We couldn't. We would be paying forever, separated from God. But Jesus, once for all, on that cross, took that penalty for us and paid the price of our salvation and offers us salvation as a free gift. He says, come to the Father. I have paid your way. In a minute, we're going to take these elements that remind us of what Jesus was willing to do for us. And when you're ready, you can come up and take the bread and the cup. They're, they're both together in the same container. You first peel back the film on top to get to the bread and then peel back the foil to get to the juice. But first, let's just hear again the words of the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But then he gives a word of warning. He says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. What would it be to do this in an unworthy manner? It would be to do it apart from faith. To do it uh, hoping that those elements are going to do something magical in you, and they won't. This is a remembrance of the cost of our salvation, and this is for those who put their trust in Jesus. An unworthy manner could also imply that we're living with sin in our lives that we don't intend to resolve. And so Paul encourages us to resolve it. And he says this, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. Paul encourages us to take some time before we take these elements and just search our hearts. See, first of all, do you truly belong to Christ? Have you put your trust in him as your Savior and your Lord, have you asked him to forgive your sin and to live in you? 
If you haven't done that, feel free to abstain. No harm, no foul, but this would be an excellent time to make that move, to ask him to forgive you, to come and live in you. This would be a great time to do that. So we're going to take some time to examine our hearts, deal with any sin that we need to confess to him. And then when you're ready, come take these elements, take them back to your seat and have a sweet time of communing with God in a special way as we remember the cost of our salvation. So let's take some time to pray. Let me start in prayer. Father, Thank you that Jesus was willing to go to the cross for us. Thank you that he planned it before he even created us. Thank you that he did it once and for all, bore the price of all sin that will ever be committed. And so, Father, we consider our response to that amazing love. Father, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning that just needs to say, Lord Jesus, I get it. You did that for me. Would you come into my heart and be my Savior and Lord? Father, I pray that that person would just come to you right now and uh, then be able to take these elements in a way they never did before, in a way they never could before. Um, and I pray, Father, that all of us right now would just deal with the sin that wants to take us captive. Father, let us just confess it to you Seek the help of your Holy Spirit as we want to live without it and live lives that honor and glorify the one who gave himself for us. So meet us now in this time as we examine our hearts and commune with you.